on top of everything else we've had to deal with in 2020, it is an election year, which makes this a very, very political season. I was thinking that uh, uh, this is the most spiritual election that we've had in, in quite some time. Spiritual in the sense that no matter which party you're listening to, if the other guys win, we're all going to hell. So this is, uh, this is how we have framed things. Uh, I normally uh, kind of get a kick out of uh, the political conventions. They're a little weird this year, this whole uh, distance learning convention. I, I don't know how you, this, uh, the, uh, the DNC's uh, uh, four-day infomercial was pretty terrible. Uh, the RNC, I'm not sure what, what uh, how they're going to improve upon the, the difficult situation. Uh, normally, I enjoy the political spectacle of it, although I have to admit that the uh, conventions don't interest me as much as, as much as they once did. And a lot of that is because they are not as important as they once were. You know, there, was a, there, was a, there was a time in history when political conventions were a place where a lot of decisions were made. A lot of, a lot of important things went down during the convention. Now, pretty much all of those decisions are made well in advance. No, there's rarely any surprise. Everybody kind of knows what's going to happen. So effectively, the conventions are just not really as important as they once were. There are a lot of show, and the show can be kind of entertaining, but aside from that, uh, there's not a whole lot that happens there. But, of course, both parties try to make it seem like the convention is very, very important, and one of the ways that they do that is by telling you what you want. Now, this is uh, a very effective technique. Marketers know this. Politicians know this. Uh, it's very effective to tell people what they want. It's an effective marketing strategy because most people do not know what they want. Now, that's not an insult. I'm not saying that, that people are, are ignorant or foolish or, or any such thing, saying that most people simply don't know what they want. It's kind of a quirk of our human nature. Sorry. Discontentment is easy, right? It's easy to find the things that frustrate us. It's easy to be unhappy. Finding a real solution to what we're discontent about is hard. It's, it's difficult. The answers don't come easily. And so while it's generally not a problem for us to figure out what we're unhappy about, it's not always that clear figuring out what would make us happy. People generally know when they don't want what they have. So if you are unhappy with your government, if you're unhappy at work, if you're unhappy at home, if you're unhappy with your church, if you're unhappy uh, in one of your relationships, if you're unhappy with yourself, no matter what it is, if you're unhappy, you know that there's something there that you don't want. And humans, we human beings are pretty effective when it comes to figuring out someone or something to be responsible for our unhappiness. Now, we may have a legitimate role 
and having made us unhappy, or they might just be a scapegoat. It really doesn't matter. We can find somebody to blame. Maybe it'll be legit. In either case, we know what we don't know. Knowing a problem is not the same thing as knowing a solution. Few people carefully consider what they really want. In other words, we're just generally better <laughs> as human beings at being disgruntled than we are at arriving at meaningful solutions to our problems. Solutions, you see, require time and effort. It may, in fact, require wisdom that we do not have at our disposal. And so, like, uh, like rebellious children railing against mom and dad, we resist. But it's rare for us to really have in mind a workable alternative to what it is that we're frustrated with. The fact that we don't really know what we want leaves us vulnerable to being manipulated by people who will tell us what we want. Advertisers, politicians, community influencers, even evangelists, we all know this about the human population, and sometimes we utilize it to bend their will. They tell us what we want, and then they go about making the case for why they are the ones best suited to giving us what we want. And lo and behold, what they have to offer is exactly what they told us we wanted. Now, just to give you an example, and there's lots, once you, once you, once you know this dynamic, you just, just watch how it goes, but watch, watch commercials on television, and you'll see this constantly. You know who's really good at this? That my pillow guy. Man, if I see another one of his commercials, it'll be too soon. That guy, he's on constantly, right? And if you are having trouble sleeping, he's got the solution for you because he worked years to engineer a new kind of pillow. And so he comes on and he tells you what you want, what you really want is a new kind of pillow. Well, now, I suffer from insomnia pretty regularly. And on the list of things that cause sleeplessness for me, my pillow is near the bottom. All right? But he guarantees me, personally guarantees me, that if I buy his pillow, I'll have the best night's sleep I will ever have. Now, how likely is it? I don't, I've never used his pillow, so I don't know. I have no idea. It could be a great product. I don't mean to bash his product. Does my pillow cure insomnia? I kind of think not. But that's okay, because if you buy the pillow and it doesn't fix everything for you, he's got a mattress topper now, right? And then if that doesn't work, you could buy the Giza Dream Sheets. And now bath towels for some reason. I don't understand. I'll tell you what you want, and then I'll tell you why I'm the best one to supply what you want. Well, that's marketing. That's marketing. We understand that. 
we watch infomercials, we might get excited about the claims that they make, but, but we know it's marketing. What about when we're choosing leaders for our community or for our country? Will additional bureaucracies and bigger budgets actually save us from the problems that we have? It's unlikely. What about salvation? What about when evangelists reduce the gospel to gimmicks or to the promise of prosperity? When we have not wisely considered what it is that we really want or really need, we are vulnerable to manipulation. And that's why Americans have closets full of stuff that they didn't know that they wanted it turned out to not actually meet the need that they had. That's why we vote for politicians based on campaign promises that they could not possibly fulfill and probably never intended to. That's why we flounder sometimes in dysfunctional relationships that we find ourselves unable to repair. When I was doing a lot of counseling, I used to use this question quite regularly with uh, new clients. Call it the miracle question. You come in to see me, and one of the questions that I have to answer is, what does this person want to get out of this process? So I ask them this miracle question. And it goes kind of like this. If uh, you go to bed tonight, you wake up in the morning, and during the night, a miracle has happened, and everything is better. Everything is as it should be. But you don't know that the miracle happened. You're just waking up. What do you see? What do you notice that tells you that the miracle happened? See, this kind of clarifies our purpose, trying to get at the real business end of what is it that we'd like to see genuinely, miraculously different. And so we come to our passage this morning in 2 Peter, wrapping up our study of 2 Peter today, 2 Peter 3. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a passage right out of the middle of the chapter first, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire in the earth, and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I, t I, I, I chose this passage because for Christians, the miracle morning is the day of the Lord. For Christians, for believers, for disciples, the morning that you wake up and everything has gotten better, we call the day of the Lord. And Peter urges the disciples to look forward to it, even to speed its coming. It's the day that everything gets better, when Jesus returns and he completes his work. It's the day that there'll be a whole new heaven and a whole new earth. 
So everything extraordinary and beautiful and lovely about the world as we know it, but without evil, without sin, and without death. It is the place, as Peter says, where righteousness dwells. But that is the aftermath of the day of the Lord. Peter's description of the day of the Lord does not sound like anything anybody would look forward to. It doesn't sound all that great, honestly. The prophets even recognize it as a great and terrible day. When the earth and all of the earth's deeds will be laid bare, all the secrets exposed, the elements, the elements will be destroyed. Even the heavens will burn. That's your miracle morning? Who looks forward to that? In fact, a great many people, perhaps most people, deny that this is ever going to happen. Even Christians, honestly, prefer not to think about it. But Peter says in verses 3 through 7, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own even evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, look, don't, don't be fooled because the elements of our destruction are already at hand. This is a, this is a clever little argument that he makes. He says, look, the water was God's tool. It was a force when he created the earth. It's from this water and by this water that he shaped the earth around us. We know, we, we live in a state where water is a lifeblood, right? We have water everywhere. And as long as it stays where it's supposed to stay, that's a good thing. But when the water exceeds its banks, when the rains come too hard and, and, the, and, the, and the rivers flood, We've also seen the damage and destruction it can do. What Peter is saying is the water that God used to create the earth, the water that you now wash in and cook with and drink to live, the water that supports your livelihood, the same water God will use to judge the earth, or God did use to judge the earth. And now the fire, the fire that you have that is, a gift is a tool, is a useful thing when it's bound to be the element of your destruction, to be the vehicle of destruction. The fire that's in your oven, the fire that warms your house, maybe even the fire that clears your field. These are all useful fires, but you lose control of that fire, and what happens? Destruction. The irony 
is that in our world today, secular prophets are constantly obsessing about the ways that the world is going to destroy itself. Whether it's going to be this virus or it's going to be climate change or what have you, there's always something, there's always something that's going to destroy us. And why? Because the more we look at the world, the more we recognize how fragile the foundation of our life, which is particularly terrifying if you don't recognize that God reigns, that God is in charge, that the creator is still engaged with his creation, that the reason the earth is kept in such perfect balance to keep us alive is because God intends for us to live here. But it's also a lesson on how easily those elements upon which we depend for our livelihood every day can be turned and used in our judgment. So, Peter says, the present heaven and the present earth have been reserved by God for fire. This will be a day of judgment. Now, I don't know about you. I don't even like people checking my credit score. And mine's pretty good. I hate being judged. I hate being evaluated. This is a day of judgment, real, down-to-the-earth, nitty-gritty judgment. Who looks forward to that? Somebody who's already been pardoned. Let's, let's, not, let's not have any bones about that. We are, we're guilty. Everybody who shows up on the day of judgment, guilty. Guilty as sin, we say, because we're guilty of sin. We're all guilty. It's just through Jesus Christ, we've already received the pardon. We've got the greatest plea deal ever. He does all the work, and then he wipes our record clean. We're pardoned, so we can enter into this judgment with the, with the foreknowledge, the foreknowledge that even though we're guilty, we're going to be declared innocent. We have been spared judgment not on our merit, but on the grace that we've received through Jesus Christ. But would I still then, even still, would I look forward to judgment if I knew that it meant the destruction of many We used to sing this hymn, very rocketh hymn, Troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. Freedom we all hold dear, now is at stake. Jesus is coming soon, many will meet their doom. Trumpets will sound. Man, it was a raucous song. It was exciting. What a happy tune. Many will meet their doom. All kidding aside, disciples recognize that the bitter pill of judgment is a prerequisite to renewal. This is a difficult truth, but the reality is we cannot live in this perfect world until everything that has broken this world is resolved. 
The world that we live in was created good, but it has been broken by sin and evil. And, and folks, no matter what you hear from either political party, we cannot fix it. We cannot fix this. Because we didn't get here by making questionable political moves. We got here because the whole world is full of sin and evil. We got here because the heart of man is essentially wicked. So we can defund the police because crime only happens because we have police, right? But it ain't going to work. There will be, in this life, there will always be crime. There will always be war. There will always be lawlessness. There will always be despots who are out to control, dominate, and murder other people. Because humanity, on the whole, is in rebellion against the lawgiver. That's not a race problem. That is a human problem. This gets to the root. The world says Christians are so judgmental. You keep calling everybody sinners because they sin. That's why they're all sinners. That's why we're all sinners, because we sin. We don't seek a political or a cultural solution to sin. We seek a Savior because of sin. Not only to forgive our sins for today, but because he can promise a future for us without that sin. That is such a remarkable idea, we can't even wrap our minds around it. We aren't looking forward to the ends of governments or the ends of police forces or the ends of armies. We look forward to a world that no longer requires them where truth and love and peace and justice are not platitudes that we drag out every four years for presidential elections. They are the reality of the kingdom in which the only one who's actually worthy to be king sits on the throne. Do we cheer the destruction of the lost? (laughs) Well, not if we have the heart of God, we don't. Peter says in verse 8, he says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter says, God waits patiently to spare more souls. Judgment is, in fact, great and terrible. It is necessary to get to where Christ is taking us, but it is tragic. Not only for us, but for God himself. God desires that all humanity be saved. In fact, he commissions us to share the gospel around the world so that as many as possible can be saved from this fate. To tell them, look, your sin is beyond repair. There's nothing that you're going to do that's going to fix the damage you've already done. But Jesus wants to restore your soul anyway. He wants to give you forgiveness. He wants to give you new life. He wants to give you an eternal pardon. And all of these are offered to you freely. 
So you choose the one king who's worthy of being king. And the miraculous part is he chooses you back. This is God's desire. And it should be our desire, though we know where God loves perfectly, we we love kind of imperfect people. God loves us so much, and he waits patiently, desiring from all men to come to this recognition. But Peter says to us, wait, do not mistake God's love and patience for apathy about sin and evil. Because the judgment will come, and swiftly. It says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When does a thief come? When we've locked all the doors and turned on all the security lights and you're not watching with your binoculars? No, the thief comes when you least expect it. When you're not on guard, when you're not watching. It'll catch us unaware, distracted, unguarded. And Peter's answer to this is essentially be ready. So, I mean, are we ready? At the most basic level, this just means, have you given your life to Jesus? Have you repented? Have you turned your back on this apprenticeship to evil that all of us have gotten caught up in and turned towards Christ to become his disciple? Have you been buried and risen in the water of baptism that you could be marked as one of the redeemed. Peter says to us, you ought to live holy and godly lives in light of what you know is coming. This creates for us a certain amount of confusion. Peter tells us because we know it's coming, we should live godly lives. Does that mean that through our holiness, we will survive the judgment? Oh, not likely. I don't know about you, but I missed that boat a long time ago. The only holiness I have is the the holiness that's been conferred on me through the blood of Christ and faith in Christ. This is what Peter says in verse 17 and 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of, of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. In other words, Peter says, look, your position is secure. In essence, he's saying, uh, you could lose this, but it's yours to lose. Hold on to it. This is what this authentic journey is all about. Stay the course. Keep the faith. Keep your focus on Jesus. And the day, the day ushers in an eternity. Remember what Peter said when we first opened up this study. Jesus is going to be a stumbling block for some. He's going to bring about their downfall. He's going to be the cornerstone of a new life for others. Same stone. Same man, same Savior, same God. A stumbling block for some, a cornerstone for others. 
Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah said that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess the Lord. The world around us is an incredibly beautiful place. You open your eyes and look at it, you see the mark of God. We also see the mark of evil. We see how it's distorted, broken, twisted, good things to render them useful. We find ourselves in a world where we're actually debating the meaning of righteousness, the meaning of justice, even the meaning of love until we come to a place where immorality, lawlessness, and hatred are held to be virtues. We champion the day of the Lord in spite of its terrible consequences because on that day, truth and righteousness will prevail. They will prevail so much that no one, no matter how they live in this life, no matter how much they set themselves up against God, no one will be able to deny that Jesus is Lord. Every single knee will bow. The king will return, sin will be destroyed, and yes, the wicked will perish. Peace and godliness will reign forever. I probably don't have to tell you that the world thinks this is a crazy type of thing. The world thinks this is a lot of spiritual mumbo-jumbo. I'd take this solution over anything the parties had to offer. See, the kingdom is our destination and our journey. And his, if you belong to Christ Jesus, his resurrection, his burial, his death, his burial and resurrection, that's your redemption. He is the first fruits, the first traveler of a journey that we've been promised to take the beginning of a journey which will end in his perfect presence. Meanwhile, we inhabit this space between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. Between the salvation that we have received from, for, from our sin to the salvation he's promised from This is Peter's message to us. What, what, what we are now is not what we will be. Where we are now is not our destination. That's, that's still coming. And we do not live for this day. We live for the day. Because we do not belong 
after this prayer.